0: Anger Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. This morning, I shall begin by reading Isaiah 63, verse 15 to 65, 12. In other words, we are skipping several chapters. 63, 15 to 65, 12. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne holy and glorious where are your zeal and your might your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us but you are our father though abraham does not know us or israel acknowledge us you lord are our father our redeemer from of old is your name why lord do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. No eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my face offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks. And the valley of Echor, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts bring great glory to your name and strength to your people. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for Jesus' sake, amen. Of course, the program booklet gave a title to this address, but if I had to give a different title to this address, it would be How to Pray for Revival. This is one of the most amazing collections of intercessory prayer anywhere in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah foresees the calamities of sin and judgment that will befall his people even after they return from the exile. They're back from the exile now, but the temple is still smashed. The city walls haven't been rebuilt. Yes, there's promise ultimately in another two chapters of the new heaven and the new earth, the final eschatological culminating blessing, but before we get there, there's a lot of suffering to go through. Even historically, it's worth pausing for a moment to remind ourselves where we are. The southern tribes were taken off into captivity in 586 under the Babylonians. 539, they started coming back under Zerubbabel and Joshua, a different Joshua. You can read about him in Haggai. And then there was a return under the ministry of Ezra, and of course, under Nehemiah some decades later. And gradually, the temple was built under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, and the walls were rebuilt under the ministry, the administrative leadership of Nehemiah and the hand of God upon them. But still, the people were a vassal people under the mighty Medo-Persian empire. Many of them were suffering quite a lot. The the city had to be repopulated. And then after the Old Testament accounts stop in what we sometimes call the intertestamental period, The Medo-Persian Empire was taken over by the Greek Empire. So, if you're keeping track, we started with Israel under the Assyrians, then under the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians took over from the Babylonians and allowed people to return to their own homeland, hence the end of the exile. And then the Medo-Persians were taken over by the Greeks. Alexander the Great and his bands of marauding rifts that opened up the east all the way to the borders of India where he died at the age of 33, give or take. When he died, the empire was divided up under four generals. One was General Ptolemy down in Egypt, so that area to the south of Israel was one regional superpower. And to the north, another dynasty was set up in Syria, so there was little Israel squished between a general to the north and a general to the south, and they tried playing power politics back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They were sandwiched between two very rough slices of granary bread. And then eventually, the north won in that conflict. And in the second century before Christ, the minor emperor, Epimenides IV, Um, he decided that he would abolish monotheism for good. He sent in his troops to Jerusalem. He slaughtered pigs on the altar. He insisted that people get rid of the uh, Torah and made owning a copy of it a capital offense. Um, There was blood everywhere. That's when the Jews began a program of guerrilla warfare under a man called Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer in Aramaic. He had two brothers. He was killed. Then brother two took over, and he was killed. Then brother three took over. And gradually, gradually, over a three-and-a-half-year period, there was a, a, a more and more of a pushback of the Syrians to the north until there was a great pitched battle on the banks of the Orontes River. And for the first time in half a millennium, the Jews became masters at home. 164 B.C., After three and a half years of guerrilla struggle, endless poverty and bloodshed, so what did the Jews do? What's the first thing they did? Did they restore the Davidic throne? No. What they did was play power politics themselves. And there were little struggles amongst the various rebel leaders, and they they remained in power. They didn't want a David-Eyed on the throne. They knew who it would be, but they they, they didn't want a David-Eyed on the throne. It would take away their power. Until 63 B.C., when the Romans took over, the Romans became the superpower that squashed the rest of the Greek empires. And all the time, little Israel, a vassal state, is always oh, got a petty king like Herod ruling over it, but, but struggle and corruption and idolatry and, 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 and suffering and, 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 and no glory, no restoration of the Davidic throne. And then Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So that's the way the history runs, do you see? Small wonder. Isaiah foresees a time of suffering, not of great reformation and revival. There are moments of glory, as in the revival that breaks out in the time of Nehemiah. But this is not a a, a splendid opportunity for worldwide expansion or anything like that. The the people are hanging on, but that's about all. And there is sin and hypocrisy and double dealing just about everywhere. Isaiah foresees all of this. He sees, in other words, the city of God in wretched disorder and disarray. He longs for divine intervention to set things straight. Will God always be severe? It's easy for us to look back on a century and a half of a revolution, world wars, Great Depression, Great Recession, the years of the Troubles, Don't God's people sometimes cry out and saying, How long, O Lord? Will you not show mercy upon us? So what we find out in this passage is how once again there is a kind of bifurcation, a kind of running tension in the text. On the one hand, the God of severity is disclosed. But he's disclosed in the desperate prayers of God's sinful, shattered people. Let me repeat that. God discloses himself as the God of severity in the first part of our passage, 6315 to 6412. But he is disclosed in the desperate prayers of God's sinful, shattered people. Listen to their questions as they approach God. Number one, there are seven. Number one, where is your love? Verses 15 and 16. Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Note that expression. Isn't that wonderful? Your lofty throne, holy and glorious. We'll come back to it. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our Father. Though Abraham disowns us, though he doesn't know us, or Israel acknowledges you, at least, O oh God, you are our Redeemer from of old. Where is your love? If you really care for us, why are we suffering so much? Why don't you bring in reformation and revival if you love us so much? You surely love us more than Abraham. We can't imagine him abandoning us. And if he did abandon us, you're still God. You're still the Redeemer. Where is your love? That's the first question. Second question. Why have you hardened and abandoned us? Verses 17 and 18. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? You see, the language is shockingly blunt. They recognize that God's sovereignty is so sweeping without denying for a moment that they are hardening their own hearts, that they are themselves guilty. They see themselves being guilty under God's sovereignty. And... and, and, They come within a whisker of charging God with giving them the hardness of heart that they are experiencing. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a while, a little while, your people possessed your holy place. From the time of Solomon, when the temple was built in the 900s, to the time when it was destroyed under the Babylonians in 586, about three and a half centuries. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary why lord do you make us wander from your ways why have you hardened and abandoned us that's the second question third question where is your covenant faithfulness 6319 we are yours from of old but you have not ruled over them that is our oppressors whether it's the babylonians or the Medo-Persians or the Greeks, uh, they've not been your covenant people. We are yours from of old. You are our God. You haven't ruled over them, then why are they winning? Why are they oppressing us? They have not been called by your name. You see, that's a question that surfaces many times in different ways in the Old Testament. It's at the heart of the entire prophecy of Habakkuk. Habakkuk can understand that God may use a powerful nation to chasten his people because of their sin. What he can't understand is why God should use a nation which on any objective scale is more wicked than the nation of his covenant people to punish the covenant people. Do you see? At at least we're yours. There's something to us. We, we, We are children of the covenant. but they have not ruled over you have not ruled over them and yet they're winning that's the third question where is your covenant faithfulness fourth question why have you not acted dramatically to save us as you have done in the past 64 1 to 3 oh that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. There is God in Isaiah's mind, hidden away beyond the heavens in the remote abode of the living God. But you are God. Why, why, why don't you just rip the heavens open and come down? If you manifest yourself amongst the people, judgment will fall. Justice will be done. People will be saved. Why don't you rend the heavens and come down? Intervene. Intervene spectacularly. None of this sleazy bit by bit stuff. Rend the heavens, come down. That's what you've done in the past. You came down. You did awesome things that we did not expect. You came down and the mountains trembled before you. Think of what happened when you came down at Sinai and and the people trembled in fear. When you came down at at the Red Sea and and the waters opened and we came through. Things we did not expect. You came down. Why don't you come down again? And of course, we in our turn read of the Reformation. Reformation and say, why don't you come down and visit Europe again? You, you, you came down in China. The missionaries left fewer than a million Christians by any definition of Christian. And now it's hard to estimate exactly, but 80, 90 million Christians, God came down for half a century. And then, of course, something on a similar scale, not quite as large, in Ethiopia, when the Italians came in and all the missionaries left in the 1930s. And then the great revival, sometimes called the evangelical awakening. The Americans typically call it the great awakening in the 18th century. God came down. Then the New York revival of 1857, which spread to Europe, not least to Northern Ireland in 58, 59. Then Korea in the 20th century. In small measure, I remember when Quebec, in a population of sixty-six and a half million, had not more than 35 or 36 churches, none with more than 30 or 40 people. In French Canada, suddenly, in eight years, we grew from a thirty-five or thirty-six churches to five hundred. God came down. I remember prayer meetings that never ended before midnight. People were too busy praying. And of course, in the Bible, you you, you think of Reformation and revival under Josiah under Hezekiah, under Nehemiah in the Old Testament, and many more. So why have you not acted dramatically to save us, hmm? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Number five, why can't we trust the lessons of history? 64, 4, and 5. Since ancient times, no one has heard No ear is perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. We learn that from redemptive history. But when we continue to sin against them, you are angry. How then can we be saved? You've sent forth your power to save people in the past. We read the history, but we can't trust the history because you're not doing it today. Number six, why is there no hope for us in our filth? Verses six and seven. All of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous acts, let alone our dirty acts, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shruvel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. That's the expression the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans 1, where God gives people over to their sins. Why is there no hope for us in our filth? In brief, number 7, verses 8 to 12, why do you withhold your mercy? Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand, do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray for we are your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Our Zion is even Zion is a wasteland. Z- Jerusalem a desolation, our holy and glorious temple. Ah, oh, do you remember that expression back in sixty three fifteen your holy, lofty throne, holy and glorious. The temple can be seen as god 's throne too, our holy and glorious temple wherein where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, would you hold yourself back? Where's your mercy? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? So the prayers have ended with notes of desperation, plea, intercession. How will God answer? Ruin is inevitable unless God intervenes. Ultimately, Isaiah will hold out hope of the culminating glory yet to come. We'll focus on that tonight. That's the way the book ends. But in the near term, in the short term, God presents A measure of hope balanced by a measure of threat. He does this in the second part of our passage, the hope for renewal in God alone. 65, 1 to 12, the hope for renewal in God alone. These 12 verses are cast in two pairs, each pair is tinged with tension between the prospect of blessing and the threat of judgment. The prospect of blessing, the threat of judgment. It comes along twice. First, worldwide grace, verse 1, and worldwide justice and punishment, verses 2 to 7. Then, the remnant Verses 8 to 10, and the damned, verses 11 to 12. This is dramatic reading, and it gets more dramatic yet as we'll see tonight. So, worldwide grace, verse 1 of chapter 65. God answers after all of these penetrating, painful, desperate pleas, God. Responds, I revealed myself who those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. In other words, this is a foretaste of something that is seen throughout the Bible and especially under the terms of the new covenant. As Paul works it out, as Luke Acts demonstrates, Paul goes into a new town where there are a lot of covenant people in a synagogue where the scriptures are read and so on. He preaches, and most commonly, he's turfed out. He's opposed. He's criticized. Uh, Who is this Jesus? He can't possibly be the Messiah. So he goes next door and preaches to the Gentiles instead, and they believe. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. That's part of the argument of Romans 9 to 11. For when God does lay out his arms to his own people, he discovers that despite their superficial prayers, they don't really want them. Verse 2, all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people. That is, as opposed to those who did not ask for me, to whom I revealed myself, all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, at people who continually provoke me to my very face. Let me give you some of the evidences of it, he says. They offer sacrifices in gardens. That is, they don't follow the prescribed legal requirements of going to Jerusalem and the temple. burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves, the necromancers, spend their nights keeping secret vigil, the abodes of the dead, seances, black magic, tarot cards, who eat the flesh of pigs. They don't even keep the requisite food laws, whose pots hold broth of impure meat. And then they actually say to me, in effect, God says, keep away, don't come near me, I'm too sacred for you. I'm holier than you are. We do similar things today. How many university missions have I spoken at in recent years where Christopher Hitchens is cited, God is not great. God is a genocidal maniac. God is cruel. God is exclusivistic. The God of the Bible is narrow-minded and intolerant. Keep away, keep away. I'm too holy for you. That's exactly what this generation says to God. Such people are smoke in my nostrils a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. Justice is demanded. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord, because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. Have you noticed What sins are particularly set forth here? Nothing about robbing banks. Nothing about rape. Nothing about pornography. Nothing about cheating. Nothing about adultery. All of these sins we might be inclined to write off as um, ceremonial law, getting your food right. You you, you can't have a, a bacon buddy. So they offer the sacrifice in the wrong place. Big deal. At least they're trying to offer a sacrifice. They're trying to be religious, aren't they? And all the things about which God is most indignant, we tend to view as superficial. Yeah, but where does he talk about rape, huh? But God sees these things as of the essence of the problem because they're breaking the covenant. They're defying God. They are erecting their own idols. The thing that's behind all of them is idolatry. They're busy singing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And they're so blind. They're so deaf. They're so damnably lost. They don't see what an offense this is to the God who brought them out of slavery and graciously gave them his covenant. So there's hope for renewal in God alone. Even to people who are not part of the covenant community, probably pagans are in view in 65.1, people who do not know me, but I reveal myself to them, to those, in fact, who despise my words and my ways. I visit them in wrath. And then the same thing recurs, the same tension in verses 8 and following. On the one hand, the remnant, verses 8 to 10, and on the other hand, the damned, verses 11 to 12. You see, it's not, at the end of the day, all the Israelites who are lost this way. In fact, the Lord explains, giving a sort of um, object lesson, as when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, "Don't, don't throw them away, don't destroy it, there's still some blessing in it, squeeze a little harder, you get some more grape juice so will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. In other words, the people will come back and settle in Jerusalem again. The temple will be rebuilt. It's like what happens when Paul says, has God therefore abandoned his people? No, he says, of course not. He says, I myself am a Jew. God has his own remnant. So also God has his remnant here. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds. Here the prospect is of a return and some measure of blessing, some restoration to the land and so on. Not now cast in terms of a new heaven and a new earth. We'll come to that tonight. But there will be some blessing for, for my people who seek me. But, on the other hand, as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, that is, treating these seers and seancers and necromancers and so on, who allegedly control the future, that's where you're putting your hope, that's where you're putting your, your trust like the kings of Judah when they were so lost and, and rebellious. They, they wanted the prophet of the Lord to give their opinion as to what was going to happen, but they also wanted the pagan priests and priestesses to come in and give their opinion of what would happen. They spread a table for fortune, fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. Listen, God says, I will destine you all right. I'll destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For the truth of the matter is, you picture yourself as calling upon me. Hence the prayers of agony and desperation that we saw two chapters back. But the truth of the matter is, he said, although you picture yourself this way, I called for you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. If there's hope for renewal, It's hope in God alone. But meanwhile, there is still this terrible threat. Now, I want to conclude a little differently this morning. I want to conclude with two conclusions, a theological one and a practical one. The theological one I've alluded to two or three times in this series, but it's time that I brought it together to make it a little more integrated. I would argue that the Bible affirms, amongst other things, two propositions which it expects believers to hold on to. Now, many more propositions, I'm just referring to two. Here they are, proposition number one. God is absolutely sovereign but his sovereignty never mitigates human responsibility. Let me repeat. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never mitigates human responsibility. Do you have that one? Number two. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. By that I mean they choose and their choices are significant. They believe, they disbelieve, they obey, they disobey, and so on. They are humanly responsible creatures, but their responsibility does not make God absolutely contingent. It's not as if God is somehow waiting for human beings to finally do something. Otherwise, his hands are tied behind his back. Now, both of those propositions are taught everywhere in Scripture, and in some places they are brought together, as in the prophecy of Isaiah. Let me repeat the two propositions again. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign, but His sovereignty never mitigates human responsibility. Just because God is sovereign over an event doesn't mean that the human beings that are engaged in that event aren't held to account for what they do. And human beings are morally responsible creatures before God, but that doesn't make God contingent. Now let me give you three passages of scripture, two from outside Isaiah, one in Isaiah, so that you see where this is going. One that I alluded to briefly two days ago is Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. You will recall the setting. The old man Jacob has finally died. And Joseph's brothers are afraid that now that the old man is dead, he will take vengeance upon his brothers for the fact that they sold him into slavery. And when Joseph hears about this, he's a bit hurt that they think that he's so vindictive. And he reasons his way through those events. And he says, Genesis fifty nineteen, 19, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to save many people alive as this day. Now, To understand the power of what joseph is saying you need to think through what he did not say he did not say god's intention was to send me down to egypt in an air-conditioned chauffeur driven limousine but unfortunately you guys mucked it up and as a result i went down as a slave it's not portrayed that way nor is it portrayed You sold me into slavery because God wasn't watching that day. He was going for a stroll. But, you know, when he did engage, he's so good at his chess moves that he played things around so that although I went down as a slave and suffered quite a bit, nevertheless, he brought out something glorious at the end. He doesn't say that. Rather, in one and the same event, there were two actors with different motives. You intended it for evil. God intended it for good. It's not just the brothers acting, but whatever was evil in the event was their fault. It's not just God acting, but God's actions and intentions in the whole event were entirely good. God stands behind good and evil, but he doesn't stand behind good and evil symmetrically, that is, in the same way. He stands behind good in such a way that it is clear in Scripture that God is the author of all good. He is to be praised for it. But he stands behind evil in an asymmetric way such that the evil component in the action is always attributable to secondary causes, like the brothers in this particular case, because God is always and invariably and exclusively good. He's not sometimes good or partially good, He's good, 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 good. He's always good. Those are the two propositions. Now turn to Isaiah chapter 10. This is in the first part of the book where Isaiah has already, t- where the Assyrians have already taken over the northern tribes um, and they're threatening Jerusalem. And God says, Isaiah 10, verse 5 woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. In other words, God depicts the Assyrians as God's own club of anger, which he is using to chasten the Israelites. I send him, that is, God sends Assyria against a godless nation, He means the Israelites. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. God sends the Assyrians into Israel to bring about punishment. Do you see that? It's what the text says. But this is not what he, the Assyrian, intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy and put an end to many nations. He boasts. Are not my commanders all kings? He says, that is, even my commanders are equivalent to petty kings in your small little countries. Has not Calno fared like Carchemish? Has not Hamat like Arpad? And Samaria like Damascus? That is, cities that he's already destroyed. Verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem because the Assyrians will threaten the city and besiege it, and there will be suffering. And this is all part of God's work to punish his own covenant community by the hand of a barbaric bunch of military strengths. He will say, after he's done all of that, I will now punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this. In other words, the Assyrians haven't said, all right, Lord, which country would you like me to punish now? Rather, they're proceeding just because they want to take over. They want to be a regional superpower. By my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. No one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. Exactly the arrogance of a Hitler after he had taken over Czechoslovakia and after he had taken over Poland, and after he had mopped up France, there was just utter, utter arrogance. He was not saying in any sense, God is sovereign over this, and I'm going to have to give an account someday. It was just utter arrogance. I've done all of this. And God says, does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it, or the saw boast against the one who uses it, as if a rod were to wheel the person who lifts it up? or a club brandish the one who is not wood, therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease, etc., etc. Do you see? God is sovereign. But that does not mean the Assyrians are not held to account for what they do. The Assyrians are morally responsible creatures, but that doesn't mean that God was asleep at the switch. He's not contingent. You have to believe both of those propositions that I gave you. They are everywhere in scripture. The last passage to draw your attention to is one to which I've already referred in this series. Acts chapter four, verses 27 and 28. Acts chapter four, verses 27 to 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus went to the cross because of a two-bit political conspiracy. Expediency ruled the day. Crooked politicians, a crooked legal system. No interest in justice, interest only in power. Next verse, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Jesus went to the cross finally, not because of some political conspiracy, but because in the matchless plan of God, he was crucified in God's redemptive purposes before the foundation of the earth. But God's sovereignty in the event of Christ's crucifixion did not mitigate the responsibility of those who put him on the cross. It does not mitigate our responsibility <coughs> for whose sins he bore our penalty. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mitigate the responsibility of the human actors. The human actors were acting all right, they were doing their thing, but that doesn't make God contingent. This was still God's plan. And we live with that tension constantly. So, also in our passage now in Isaiah. 63 64 65 god is recognized by his prayer warriors he's recognized as the one who alone can bring about redemption as the one who can open the heavens rend the heavens and come down as 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 the one who who is sovereign over even even over their hard hearts but that doesn't mean that they're just robots or puppets They are accountable for their sin, and they need to cry for mercy and beg God for forgiveness. We sing these things better than we sometimes say them. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. And then picturing Peter walking on the water, thou didst reach forth thine hand and mine and fold. I walked and sank not on the storm-swept sea. Twas not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. You can never be stable in troubled times unless you believe both of those propositions which are taught everywhere in Scripture. They pulse through the prophecy of Isaiah. They pulse at the foot of the cross. And lastly, the practical conclusion. Revivals are wonderful things, both in Scripture and in the history of the church. But because this is a damned world and even God's covenant community is frequently fickle, revivals, understand this, don't last. That doesn't mean they're bad things, but they don't last. The revival and reformation under Joash didn't last. The revival and reformation under Nehemiah didn't last. He went back to the capital city, to Susa, came back 12 years later, and already there was compromise everywhere. That doesn't mean they're not good things, but they don't last. So you can't keep thinking in terms of nostalgia. You think rather in terms of a plea for God's mercy. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. My wife and I were married. Am I allowed to tell you a personal story? We were married in 1975 in Cambridge, England. My wife is English. We took our honeymoon in Wales. And one day when we were out visiting a castle at Tenby, we came out of the tour and looked around, and there was a Calvinist Methodist chapel offering afternoon tea. Well, there are Calvinist Methodist chapels all over the place in Wales. Most of them are liberal through and through at this juncture, but they're part of the Whitfield side of the evangelical awakening. So we went in to have some tea, and I looked at some of the literature around, and I I could see that they were so far left, theologically speaking, you really needed field glasses to see them. They were (laughs) way, way out there. And I went up to this table where there was a, a dear old lady offering tea she looked to me as if she were 80 or 85 but she was offering tea and then i suddenly thought hmm 80 or 85 where were you in 1904 1905 the time of the welsh revival it was all through these valleys so i decided i would sidle into this cautiously Uh, Ma'am, have you been um, in this church a long time? Oh, all my life, I've been here in the valley. You must have seen a lot of changes in this church over the last uh, decades. Oh, a lot of changes. What's the minister like who's here now? Long pause. Some people seem to like him. (laughs) Which didn't strike me as the most overwhelming endorsement. Finally, I thought to myself, "Don, just ask your question and see what happens." I said, "Ma'am, is it true what they say about the Welsh revival that when the miners were converted, they lost so much of their vocabulary that the pit ponies didn't understand them anymore?" <laughs> oh, she said, "You know about the Welsh revival. My father was one of those those those, those miners, and he, he 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 lost much more than a third of his vocabulary. Nobody could understand him." <laughs> And then she began to talk. For 40 minutes, she talked about what she had seen. When, as a girl of 10 years of age, she was converted under the power of the Spirit of God in the Welsh Revival, and chapels sprung up, up and down the valley with hymns and singing night after night. I finally said to her my dear sister in christ what are you doing now for gospel instruction how are you fed by the word of god today she reached across the table and patted my hand she said i listened to back to the bible broadcast out of monaco on trance world radio Wales today is no center of revival. It's still living on yesterday's memory. Just as Ireland lives on 1859. I don't know what God will do with Ireland or the West. We must remember that Europe was at one time the mission powerhouse for the entire world. Now it's a desperate mission field. Only 0.85% of the people in Yorkshire go to church once a month or more. And it's 0.4% who are evangelicals and both numbers are declining. Those are figures comparable to Japan. So, how shall we pray? Let us pray. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants. We are yours from of old, but you have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Have mercy, Lord God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things, things we did not expect, you came down, and the mountains tremble before you. And we beg of you, Lord God, do it again.